Hello, Grace Life family. I'm re-recording this week's sermon from my office because we had some audio issues during the stream, so at least we can have this up as a podcast. This is week number 21 in our series on Joshua. This week's sermon is called Protecting Unity. Have you ever seen or been a part of a church conflict? The fact is a church with no conflict won't be a healthy church. It's a church full of people who don't really care. But obviously, if a church has too much conflict, well, that's a sign a church isn't healthy either. So often, though, Christians, we lack courage to deal with conflict. In fact, most of us choose to deal with it in anger or maybe just walk away. We prefer silent or slanderous judgment. We cut people off. We avoid them. We look right past them or sometimes we sadly just decide to leave the church. While others, and I put this in quotations, courageously confront in anger or self-righteousness. But when we do that, we don't really want reconciliation. What we really want there is is retribution. And as a pastor, I have had a front row seat to conflict. I've seen it destroy lifelong friendships. I've seen it tear families and families that had relationships. I've seen it tear them apart. I've even seen it split churches right down the middle. My wife, Laura, and I, we have personally experienced the consequences of conflict handled incorrectly. And every time we went through that, it was costly and painful. Here's the thing, though. When conflict is handled properly, it's an incredible opportunity for love and unity, and it always brings a smile to God's face. Now, how a church handles conflict provides a window into the spiritual maturity of a church's leadership and its members. These are some of the reasons that dealing with conflict and protecting unity is one of God's highest priorities. So with that in mind, let's look at the historical application of our passage today. I want to talk about how in our series or in our story in Joshua 22, we see tremendous conflict in Israel. First of all, we want to see that there's this troubling altar that's built. So we remember from last week, the two and a half tribes were leaving uh the west side of the Jordan going east. They're going home to the land they've inherited. They've helped their brothers fight. They've been ride or die. And on their way home, they stop right before crossing the Jordan River and they construct this massive altar that no one in the region could miss. Now, the other nine and a half tribes saw this as a deviation from the worship of God. And they started saying, hey, are are these guys already ditching God before they even get started? So in response, those nine and a half tribes out of fear, they muster all their forces at Shiloh and they're they're actually thinking about going to war with these two and a half tribes that have just fought by their side for almost a decade. However, hoping for an opportunity for peaceful resolution, the 10 tribes sent Phineas, the son of the high priest, and a leader from each of those remaining tribes. Now Phineas approaches the eastern tribes with their concerns, but he did so in an attitude of brotherly love. And they recounted how Israel suffered because of the story of Achan and his sin, how they lost the battle of Ai and many men died in the process. They recalled a story about sin at Peor in Numbers 25. That's where thousands of men in Israel were seduced by Moabite and Midianite women and became ensnared in rampant sexual immorality and orgy worship in the temple of Baal. This immorality actually caused a devastating plague, a disease that killed 24,000 Israelites until the guilty parties had all been executed. Now, both of these tragedies, the sin of Achan and what happened at at Peor, both of these tragedies had happened just within the last five to 10 years of this incident. And the pain over those consequences were still there. It was still raw. And they used these stories to remind those two and a half tribes about how sin can impact an entire nation. But they didn't do it in a judgmental way. 
They were actually concerned that unclean sacrifices had made the land east of the Jordan unclean or unfit for the people of God. And so, but they were also fully committed to unity. In fact, they offered those two and a half tribes new lands. Listen, just return with us to the western side of the Jordan. Leave these unclean lands behind. We will give up some of our own land just to make sure that we have unity. You see, they weren't self-righteous. They weren't angry. They weren't seeking their own agenda. They were genuinely concerned for the unity of God's people. So the two and a half tribes explained, though, how they would rather die by the hand of God than forsake him or betray their brothers. They wanted to make clear, look, just as we were ride or die with you and we were fighting on the other side of the Jordan, we are still ride or die with you and we are still ride or die with God. They were afraid, though, that future generations of those nine and a half tribes would forget about how the two and a half tribes had been ride or die for their parents. Future generations might think just because they lived on the on the west side or the east side of the Jordan, that they were enemies and not part of Israel. Their altar they built that wasn't for unclean sacrifices. It wasn't a rival to the main altar at Shiloh. It was actually a public monument to their commitment to God and to his people. And because of this, we see something happen that unity is restored. And this brings us to our passage for today. It's in Joshua chapter 22, verses 30 to 34. So now when Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation who were with him heard that the words of the two and a half tribes spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas said to the people of Reuben, Gad, and one half of Manasseh, today we know the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And then Phinehas and the chiefs returned from the people in the land of Gilead to Canaan and the rest of the Israel, and they brought back the word to all the people. And the report was good in the sight of all the people of Israel. The people blessed God and spoke no more of making war where the two and a half tribes were settled. And those two and a half tribes called the altar witness. For they said it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So once Reuben Gad and Half of Manasseh had explained what the altar was actually for. You can imagine the relief and the joy of all the people. And that altar became a monument of their desire to stay connected to God and unified with the rest of Israel. Conflict resolution also became a powerful testimony to all the nations around them of God's faithfulness and how he valued unity among his people. So that's the history of our passage today. Now let's look at the theology about what, what about God and what is he doing I want you to see that our unity is constantly under attack. So imagine with me what would have happened if this conflict had spiraled out of control, resulting in a bloody civil war. That means everything these tribes had accomplished together would have been wasted, their futures together destroyed. Now, doesn't that sound like something the forces of evil would have an interest in fomenting or would have been thrilled to see happen? I'm going to go a step further, in fact. Be assured. The forces of darkness have always despised unified obedience among followers of Jesus. In fact, Paul warned us that our fight is not actually with each other, but against spiritual forces. And just as Satan hates our unity, it ends up it's also one of God's highest priorities. And that's why he provides the wisdom and the patience that helped Israel avoid the disaster that they faced. In fact, God is always at work despite our 
propensity to fight with one another. He's always at work to maintain the unity of his people. There's another example of this, by the way, in, in the New Testament. I've talked about this story before. It's this conflict that existed between Peter and Paul. Let me read to you from Galatians chapter two. This is Paul speaking. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face and he stood condemned or he had no excuse. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? In the Antioch church, misguided Jews in the congregation were treating Gentile followers of Jesus like second-class believers. They considered uncircumcised Gentile believers to be unclean. They wouldn't even sit or eat with them at church gatherings. Even though Peter knew salvation isn't through works or the law, he was afraid to stand up to this circumcision party. And when Peter failed to stand up for the Gentiles, it had to be very discouraging for them. And it, frankly, was a real mess. This is another James preview, by the way, of the sermon of the series we're going to do after Joshua. Did you know James 3 warns us that teachers should be willing to understand that they will face a greater accountability? You think you want to be a teacher? Not so fast. You have greater scrutiny. Now, again, just as in the story of Joshua, Satan certainly tried to exploit this conflict. He wanted to use it to attack early church unity in the process. He loves to do that. And again, God gave Paul wisdom and courage to address the conflict in a way that brought beautiful reconciliation. I want you to notice, though, that Paul didn't gossip. He didn't condemn or complain to others about Peter in private. He actually addressed Peter one-on-one directly right in Antioch. Also notice this, when Paul confronted him, did Peter get angry? Did he cut Paul off for years? No, actually he repented. In fact, there's a lot of evidence of his repentance in his letters to those very same churches in Asia Minor that Paul had planted. In fact, First and Second Peter are full of bold statements about how Gentile believers were full citizens in the kingdom of God. And all those Peter, all those people that Peter failed to confront initially in Antioch would have either read or heard of Peter's declarations about these Gentiles. They were not to be seen as second-class citizens. They were to be treated as much a part of the world priesthood as any Jewish follower of Jesus. So the next thing I want you to talk about how is how this, this confrontation and the way Paul handled it resulted in apostolic unity. In fact, Peter went even further in his epistles and affirmed the apostolic authority of everything that Paul taught in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 15, the second half of verse 15. Listen to what Peter writes. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote, wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So you see what happens here? Years after this, Peter is affirming that everything that Paul writes has the same authority as scripture. That doesn't happen without this earlier confrontation being handled correctly. Also years later, when Paul knew his time on earth was coming to an end, he wrote about his pending death in his letters. He expressed deep affection 
for the Gentile churches he had started, as well as concern for their health spiritually when when he was gone. Paul wrote many other letters during his time in prison that we don't know about, and certainly he wrote letters to the other apostles. And I believe it's rational to believe, I believe it's very probable that he wrote letters to these surviving apostles urging them, begging them to please take care of these precious Gentile believers that he loved so much, guide them and teach him when he was gone. In fact, after Paul died, Peter and John both stepped up big time. As a matter of fact, 1 and 2 Peter and John's epistles prove this, and we've actually studied those together. You can go back to our podcast or our YouTube channel and look at those series. They're full of great stories about about how these disciples loved these Gentile believers. This reconciliation between Paul and Peter preserved unity among the apostles that led to an explosion of the gospel among Gentiles for the coming centuries. This is one of my favorite stories in all the New Testament. And the great letters these men wrote are all a direct product of God protecting the unity of his people and we're still benefiting from it today. In fact, there would be no grace life. We as a church full of Gentile believers, if Peter And Paul had not reconciled and created this apostolic unity that gave a solid foundation to the early church. Okay, this brings us to our personal section this week of the sermon. What do we do and how are we supposed to do it? I've called this section, We Must Protect Our Unity. This was my sermon preview this week that I put on social media. Jesus made the unity of his followers one of our highest priorities. Sadly, we make it one of our most neglected. So God knew we, his people, would definitely struggle with conflict as we follow his command to go into the land. After all, we are human. Throughout church history, it seems one of the greatest obstacles God's people face has been conflict with each other. Sometimes it can be the result of our own individual sin or disobedience, and other times it's because of a misunderstanding. But here's what we know from our Jesus. He hates disunity among his people, whether it's from misunderstanding or from sin, it doesn't matter. He hates disunity. The record of both stories in scripture reveals to us how seriously God takes the issue of unity among his people. The record of both stories provide critical instruction into principles of conflict resolution God's people are supposed to follow. In fact, our Jesus made it clear just how seriously he takes protecting our unity. And he is extremely direct in Matthew chapter 5. It says in Matthew 5:22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be restored to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Okay, so were you aware of just how seriously our Jesus takes this issue of unity? You see the warnings he lays out, right? They're pretty intense. With that in mind, let me be clear. We, more particularly you, don't have the right not to deal with conflict. Look, I'm not saying that, it's our Jesus saying that. The consequences of disunity and conflict are devastating corporately, but also for each one of us personally. So, if reconciliation and protecting unity are this important, what are we supposed to do? Well, thankfully, Jesus told us. In fact, he gave gave instructions to all of his followers on dealing with our conflicts and protecting unity, and both stories actually use them. 
Let me read the passage from Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others with you, so every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refused to listen even to the church, let him be to you as an unbeliever. Okay, this is important to understand. I got to tell you, sadly, I've seen churches abuse this process, using it not for reconciliation and unity, but sadly for retribution or public ridicule even. That's so destructive that it's not what our Jesus intended. His goal is always to love and unify. His goal is never revenge or anger. He says, if you have an issue with your brother or your sister, you're not allowed to sit in bitterness or gossip or slander them. You're to confront them privately. If you can reconcile, then unity is restored. If not, take one or two mediators or witnesses and see if they can help you reconcile it. And if you, if your brother hears you, you're reconciled again. Unity is protected and restored. If you still can't find reconciliation with the witnesses or the mediators, bring it to your church leaders. If you can reconcile then, unity is preserved and restored. And, but even after all that, if there's still no reconciliation, we are to consider them an outsider or an unbeliever. Well, what does that mean? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you get to cut them off and judge them or stay angry and bitter for years. No, you in fact are to love them. You are to actually treat them as someone who needs to experience the grace of the gospel. You are to preach the gospel to them in love. Okay, but what if someone does the same thing over and over? What are you supposed to do then? Well, that answer, thankfully, is just a couple verses away in Matthew 18. Then Peter, by the way, it's interesting that Peter is involved in this one too. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So, if you're going to walk through this same process, 70 times 7, does this mean at number 491 you're allowed to be bitter and angry forever? No, of course not. It's just like in Revelation when we see numbers are symbolic and they're metaphors. What he really means is there's no limit to how many times we should go through this process again. But the problem is for most of us, we won't even go through the process once, let alone 490. Listen, look, I struggle with this myself. And our natural human tendency is to just be angry and bitter. It's much easier that way. In some cases, reconciliation may not be possible. I do understand that. What about then? What if the sin was so great or it'd be too painful? Well, in that situation, we pray and we have to learn to live in a state of forgiveness. Otherwise, the cancers of bitterness and resentment will take over. Evil gains a foothold. And now our commission as a church can be compromised. So here's another little preview from our upcoming series that we're going to do after this one on James. James chapter 5, verse 19, 20. It says, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So church family, as followers of Jesus, we need to zealously protect our unity and our love for one another, one another. This is a practical opportunity for you. The fact is, if we allow unresolved conflict among us at Grace Life, our mission here on Mount Lockwood Ridge 
will be struggling and we are failing our Jesus. We must have the courage necessary to, in love, not anger, in love, address these issues and look for resolution and unity. Because listen, our job going into the land with the gospel is hard. We cannot make it any harder by disunity and fighting with one another. To be successful as we go into the land with the gospel, we must have vulnerable, courageous, humble conversations. This is going to be a test of your faith. You cannot rationalize it into continued inaction. Obedience requires action. So here's an opportunity for you. In two weeks, we're going to have the Lord's table. If there is unresolved conflict with anyone in your church family or in your life right now, maybe it's been that way for years, I'm going to give you an opportunity. You have two weeks to make it right. Go find them. Resolve it. Be unified because I can tell you nothing will bring a smile to Heavenly Dad's face more when followers of Jesus resolve conflict in a godly manner and create unity for the kingdom of God. If there's unresolved conflict with someone in the church today, maybe for years, go to them. Look, our Jesus has told us what we must do. It's clear in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18. It's, it's hard to twist those around. We don't have an option of doing nothing. We, you, must act.